it's had its pros and cons as far as our patient population and our business model, honestly. Our main demographic would be insured people because we don't take Medicare. We don't have those government programs that we can kind of get reimbursed for non-insured patients. So we've had a little bit of difficulty with that. The idea that this community that we're in, you know, in the five mile radius is very much a employed insured community other than our neighbors to the south, Sun Lakes, which my mom is actually a part of. You know, so we have fought and fought and fought to get Medicare. And there is just some loopholes that the government doesn't really want us to get there quite yet. So we always tell our neighbors to the south, please be patient. We're trying. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities and future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Tricia Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, where I interview Chase Weston, who's the Chief Administrative Officer of Phoenix ER and Medical Hospital. It is a micro-hospital located in Chandler, Arizona, and we talk about how he is able to maintain a five-minute or less wait time for patients and also triage patients to determine if they are an emergency situation or non-emergency situation and guide them where it is best for them to either treat them or to send them specifically to some place where they can be treated more effectively. And with the rising costs of healthcare, they are very transparent in their healthcare costs. It's all on their website. And I felt the conversation was very timely and, and very interesting. So I hope you enjoy it as well. So Chase, welcome to the Providers, Properties and Performance podcast. Hi there. How are you? Good. You are my first micro hospital operator that I have interviewed. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what a micro hospital is and then the background of Phoenix ER and medical hospital? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we get that a lot about it being the first micro hospital because there's not a lot of us out there. (laughs) You know, a micro hospital is basically a hospital that has less than 10 inpatient beds and 20 overall beds. And they take every service you can imagine and try to fit it into a a little, you know, nice little package. We do almost everything other than surgery and ICU, basically, and labor and delivery. So we have full radiology, full lab, full pharmacy, full ER, and we have a medical unit for our inpatient telemetry. So obviously you do have, you do do overnight stays. Absolutely. Yes. We have three inpatient beds in our unit. And why do you think your hospital and micro hospitals in general started and are successful? I can speak to our hospital was operated uh, and founded by seven physicians. One of the physicians has done this kind of across the country in a, a brand called New Text. And he is a phenomenally brilliant physician, Dr. Tom Vo. He's not only clinically great, he is just a businessman extraordinaire. And he brought this idea and we had six other physicians that were in the valley and 
they wanted to take healthcare back. And I think that's one of the things you see in these micro hospitals that are popping up is generally the staff there are ones that want to make sure they are able to really take care of the patient. The patients aren't just numbers because they're not numbers as employees. You know, these are all things we talk about. And, you know, if you look at our media taglines, it's always experience the difference. And we really believe in that, not just from the patients, but even our employees and how, you know, I deal with the employees. I try to make sure they understand the difference they get from, you know, working for me than working for, you know, another large name entity in the Valley. Well, and I imagine, and we'll get to this a little bit later in the interview, because you know, your pricing is all online, but probably the the words, well, let me see, you know, you have to check and see if this is covered by your insurance probably isn't a conversation you guys have to have as much. You know, it's a different conversation. We really, even on our website, you know, we have a brilliant marketing director, Chelsea Mellinson, who created this video that I think everybody should watch once not just my patients by any means, but everybody who has ever been confused about their insurance and all the things they get in the mail after they've had a doctor's visit anywhere. It's a big, confusing world of insurance. And, you know, unfortunately, what we see is a lot of scare tactics. And so we are technically an out-of-network provider for all insurances, but the federal, you know, mandate is, is that insurances honor in-network benefits for emergency situations. That's not only a federal law, that's a state law. And it allows us to take care of patients that, you know, and, and not have to worry necessarily about the insurance says we have to do this. Okay. No, we're taking health care back. You know, we're here to take <laughs> care of the patient. We're not here to take care of the insurance. You know, we do things on a justified manner. We, you know, we go through you know, the ethics of that with our physicians, we make sure that we discuss that with our patients. You know, one of the things that we get asked a lot is, you know, we don't take Medicare, Medicaid, or TRICARE. And then what about the people that don't have insurance? Well, they still get evaluated by physician. That's state law. We have to do that. And and we want to do that. We don't want anybody coming in and then walking out because they can't pay and then have a heart attack. That's not our deal. But what is our deal is taking care of them, making sure they've been evaluated. Is this an emergency situation? And then giving them the upfront price of if they needed to be, if they want to be treated, this is no longer an emergency situation. You're not going to die right now. You've been evaluated and stabilized. What is it going to cost for you? If otherwise, here are some recommendations on what you should do next and where you can go. Which I think is helpful because I think people panic a lot. And like you say, you know, it's something may not be an emergency situation and they can get stabilized and then go to where, you know, their insurance will cover their care but they're not provided all that information. And, you know, it's in a high intensity situation. So they, you know, they panic. My mom always used to say, anytime you're going to the doctor, bring a friend that, you know, cares about you, but isn't really affected by the situation because they're going to hear everything you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) That is very true. So you guys are open 24 seven. I mean, are you guys always busy? No, you know, we're not always busy. And I think that that's, good and bad. It, it gives our, you know, our healthcare heroes some reprieve these days. You know, we're always busiest on Mondays. It just seems that things happen on the weekend, you know? So Mondays are generally our busiest days. Of course, during the pandemic surges where we get, you know, when we went last June or July, so a little over a year now, we had almost a thousand percent increase over the weekend. We went from like 17 patients to 170 patients. And that was per day. I mean, it was just a 
crazy amount. And I've never seen a team work so hard to make sure patients were taken care of. You know, I, I don't know that there's another team that can adapt to such a different situation like that. It, it was just phenomenal to see everybody pull together and, you know, just want to take care of people. Those were the the days that we finally had wait times, though. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't claim your five minutes or less. Wait time. <laughs> we couldn't time five on that one. No, we, we were we were slamming through people, but they were. No, it was not five minutes during that yeah. time. So do you communicate with the other ERs for overflow situations in that, like, for example, that case, or how do you guys you, work together? You know, it, it depends. In that situation, every everybody was, you know, very much overflowing. So there right. wasn't a lot of communication <laughs> other than, ah! <laughs> no, I, I make jokes a lot. We do have a close relationship with Chandler Regional, who's close to us from the Dignity Line, and then the new Ocotillo Medical Center from Banner. You know, I used to work at Chandler Regional and the chief operating officer over Banner, you know, him and I have formed a relationship as that, you know, we're here to take care of a community. We're not competitors. So the great thing about it is, is having that relationship is, I can tell you a couple stories. Um, We had, this was right when we first opened. We had a gentleman come in. He was, I believe he was Medicare and he came in with his wife and his wife was just not feeling good. And so he came in, saw the physician. They found out we didn't take Medicare. It was an emergency situation necessarily, or I apologize. This is a different story. So (laughs) let me back up for a second. So he came in, he found out that we didn't take Medicare, decided to go straight over to Chandler Regional. Wouldn't even get seen by the physician, even though we, we offer. He gets over there. He's waited for an hour. They say it's going to be at least another couple hours. And he calls us. He's like, is it still no wait? Like, yeah, just come on over. He comes on over, gets evaluated, gets a CT, and in 45 minutes is back at Chandler Regional in a room with his wife because she needed surgery. Wow. But she was in a room getting ready for surgery before she would have even been seen at Chandler Regional. So that's the way we're able to work with our ERs. We had another gentleman who had come in and he, you know, it was just kind of like, hey, I just need to get checked out. He talks to nurses as they're walking back saying, yeah, I've had chest pains for three or four days. And, you know, I just decided to come in and just get checked out. As he's sitting on the bed, as the doctor walks in to shake his hand, the gentleman falls over and, and has a heart attack on the position. Oh, gosh. You know, it, it just, just like, mm-hmm. I'm so glad you decided to come in. You know, what a chance right. that that was going to happen. Our nurses, you know, they're just phenomenal and, and they bring him back. And, you know, that's, it's not a pleasant process to be, you know, a defibrillator used on you. And he, he woke back up and said, ow, that hurts. Don't do that again. And our <laughs> nurses were, were, they're kind of jokers like me. And they said, no, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> so they got him stabilized and the ambulance was there and we got him over to a cath lab within 20 minutes. Wow. You know, it's just, you were able to, to really streamline and triage those things that are above our level of service. Mm-hmm. We have two great relationships to really help take care of the community not necessarily just worry about just our business. Well, and you know, I mean, you know where to send people and who to call and and get those taken care of where, you know, the patients themselves, if they start doing this, you know, they they don't have that ability. So how do you think you guys are able to keep that five minute or less wait time? You know, obviously volume is going to depict that at the end of the day, right? If we were to all of a sudden have 100 patients show up at the same time, that five minutes is not going to be the same. I've worked at other smaller hospitals and through my years of experience, 
we have learned simple barriers that can be broken, physical sight lines using cameras of our weight rooms. So if the nurses are, you know, have taken care of all their current patients and they're just kind of in a holding pattern, they see a monitor of the weight room. And so when somebody walks in, they're already getting their stuff and and saying, hey, doc, there's somebody coming in, get ready. So simple things like that allow us to get the patient basically as soon as they have the wristband on, take them back to a triage room. And depending on what it is, we may not even take them to a triage. We'll just get them back to a room. It's that dedication from the employees to understand. And they've come up with great things too. Simple use of radios, you know, being able to communicate better throughout the facility, not just in, you know, everybody's little station. It's a, it's a full team effort. Our registration staff is phenomenal. And, you know, they had to be when, when these surges happened to be able to process as many patients as we did. You know, we had one person at the desk until, you know, relief arrived. And they were able to take care of it. So just really proud of the staff. And, and they, they really do come together to make that experience. And that's why our tagline is experience the difference, because, you know, everybody here believes in that. I imagine your nurses must have to be incredibly experienced in triage, urgent care, ER, to be able to also communicate and decipher and parse the different patients to say, you know, these are emergency situations that need to be seen right away. And these these are not you know, to help with the flow. You know, what's great is, and that's absolutely correct. And a lot of our nurses have come from, you know, years of experience within the Valley at, you know, larger hospitals. So they've had all that experience and able to kind of take that experience and reference it down. But the wonderful thing is, is our nurses have, and our nursing leadership has trained our registration staff as well, not to necessarily be a clinical eye set by any means. That's not their job. They're not trained enough for that. But when they hear something like dizziness, what's your chief complaint? What's going on? Oh, I'm feeling a little dizzy. They'll call for a stat check-in. And that means the nurses are coming. And those are just those, those trigger words that they've been trained. And the registration staff is so good at hearing those things, just listening to people and making the conservative decision. Like, mm, no, I think you need to go back right now. Like, <laughs> get up here. <laughs> And we, and we get them back as quickly as possible. So they're, they're even trained on, you know, a triage level of saying, do we really need all the paperwork right now? Or can we just go ahead and get these guys back? Just, just hand me your ID and your insurance card and you just go back and see the doctor, you know? So it's, again, it's just an amazing group of the work ethic and outside of the box thinking of this entire facility is just amazing to me. I'm a pharmacist by trade. And I didn't get into the position I'm in just by being a pharmacist. You know, I, there was nobody when we were opening, nobody was really taking on the lab. So uh, I'm a pharmacist. I also work on cars. I remodel my whole house. I'll do that. So I picked up the lab manual and started reading the lab manual. We tried to hire lab technicians and they could not understand because they, they've always been in an environment that says, you must do everything like this. And, And it's simply not true. Healthcare innovation is by taking the laws and the rules and taking what you really need to do to make sure you have good patient care. You know, for example, in the lab, we have samples that are sent to us by a third party company to make sure that we're doing good, not by our justification, but by somebody else's justification, which is my favorite part of the lab because it makes me feel good. But that kind of outside thinking that after you get done with taking care of the patient, like you would take care of your mom 
is what has made us so good at everything we do and just outside of the box thinking and allows us to keep our, you know, five minute or less wait times because people just come up with new ideas and we run with. Well, you mentioned how many hats you wear and you do wear, you wear several. I mean, I think your hands-on approach to leading all the departments that you do and, and obviously and making things work smoothly has a hand in it. Oh yeah. No, I appreciate that. I mentioned my mom a lot because, you know, she's the one who instilled that in me for sure. You know, she had a big hand in developing the human resource world of the Arizona Heart Institute, another, you know, cardiologist office across the way. And, you know, she still is, is working in a, in a high level human resource position in the Valley. She's just always instilled in me, you know, check the box, you know, keep, mm-hmm. keep going, keep learning the next thing. And it's wonderful that I've been able to now take other people and do the same. You know, as I was saying, you know, I, my role is chief administrative officer, chief operation officer, which breaks down to pharmacist, lab director, facilities director. So I fix the air conditioners too. I, I, I hung all the TVs you know, human resources director, you know, the list kind of goes on. If it's not nursing, if it's not clinical, I'm probably running it. And I was able to take a young gentleman named Jeremy that I had worked with as a pharmacy tech in the past. And I remember he was of that same mindset as our bosses would just throw something, a huge new project because, you know, they either didn't want to deal with it or, you know, it was just too much paperwork for them. And he just took it, went and got it done and passed hundred percent would never have deficiencies. So when I started getting to the point where I needed help, I said, Jeremy, you need to come here, come be, be my right-hand man. You know, I'm going to teach you things. I know it's scary, but you're going to do it. And yeah, it took six months to a year to learn everything that it taken me a year to learn. Right. Yeah. But he was able to do it and keep going. And, and now he's starting to be able to lead new hires in the lab. And, you know, I try to pass that leadership and mentor mentality around and it just seems to work well here. I like that. Well, just a minute on your pricing, because I love that you put it on your website and it's all very transparent. And I'll, I'll say, you know, I mean, you say you don't take some insurance, but some of the pricing on there, people could self pay and it's cheaper than after, you know, the deductibles and the insurance not reimbursing you for everything. It, it sometimes looks like you could get your services and self pay for a lot less. You know, I actually, I like to compare, I had a shoulder surgery years and years and years ago, and I always try to compare that to what it would be if I had a Phoenix ER today. And very much so when you, when you have to go get a a shoulder surgery for a labrum tear, you would go into a a specialist office, pay a copay. Mm -hmm. They would say, Hey, you need an MRI. Awesome. Well, the insurance won't let you get the MRI. You have to have an x-ray first. So you go get the x-ray, you have to pay for the x-ray. Then you have to go back to specialists and he looks at the x-ray and says, yep, sure enough, you need an MRI. So then they go through the prior authorization and then they get that. So you've also, so you paid two copays up there and you paid for the x-ray and now you're going back and you're doing an MRI. Well, your insurance, depending on your plan, and that's, you know, everybody's personal plan and it's different, but then my copay for my MRI ended up being about $400. Well, that same MRI here just bring in your prescription from your doctor. It would have been $350. Yeah. So avoided all the x-rays, avoided all the prior authorization. You know, it, it would have just been done. And I could have probably gotten my surgery and relief from the pain I was experiencing probably about two to three weeks earlier. 
Well, and so the hassle and, you know, frustration and hassle, exactly. having to go through so many hoops. And then getting the scary letters afterwards from, you know, insurances <laughs> saying, wow, you used a lot of your benefits. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. So. I know. Well, I know you may not know exactly why they chose Chandler for the location, but how has the location served you being being in Chandler? It's had its pros and cons as far as our patient population and our business model, honestly. Our main demographic would be insured people because we don't take Medicare. We don't have those government programs that we can kind of get reimbursed for non-insured patients. So we've had a little bit of difficulty with that. The idea that this community that we're in, you know, in the five mile radius is very much a employed insured community other than our neighbors to the south, Sun Lakes, which my mom is actually a part of. You know, so we have fought and fought and fought to get Medicare. And there is just some loopholes that the government doesn't really want us to get there quite yet. So we always tell our neighbors to the south, please be patient. We're trying. And the benefit of that was that I got to go do COVID vaccine clinics down there in Sun Lakes. So, you know, even when we're, we couldn't make a dime off that, we donated all our, you know, the vaccines were free to us, of course. But all of our supplies, our nurses' time, that was all donated by Phoenix ER. We we just wanted to take care of our local community. So, it, right. you know, it's kind of a different thing to be able to say, like, and the board never never even questions me about these things when I say, I'm going to go do this for a community. They're like, oh, that's awesome, man. Like, they truly are supportive of just doing right by our, our community. So sometimes the financial benefits aren't always there. But really showing not only myself, but our employees and our community that we're here for the community is always a positive karma. And it, and it really has worked out well. We've actually got a lot of referrals from grandparents to their kids that live nearby that yeah. will travel 20 minutes to see us. You know, just it's just good. We like to be good around here. Yeah, the goodwill for sure. And do you think your facility, I mean, the facility, I, I'm assuming the only way it could be successful is being built from the ground up. You couldn't have taken over or something and did an adaptive reuse situation. I mean, I think you guys are super specialized. Yeah. You know, it's funny is this used to be a fresh and easy. So we, <laughs> you're right in saying that it, it is very difficult to take something over that it is very specialized in the business model. As far as the actual clinic, you know, there are very, very strict rules on how to build a hospital. And it was very difficult and it was a huge learning curve for the majority of the physicians and, and definitely myself. I, I read guidelines that I'd never heard of before and boy, it was awesome. Honestly, it was, I'm, I'm one of those nerds that will read a guideline book just because, all right, I got, I got to know this to make, make my world better kind of thing. But you taking a fresh and easy, you definitely have to just tear everything out of it and make it an empty shell and redo the whole thing. It's yeah. not, not an easy task. Well, grocery stores, some of those neighborhood smaller grocery stores have, have been incredibly successful for different medical facilities because you can, I mean, there's not a lot to tear out in the middle. Exactly. You know, they have power because you have freezers mm -hmm. and a bunch of, you know, other things. So the infrastructure is there. Yeah. The only thing that really wasn't here for us, we added on maybe two to 300 square feet on the front of the building. And then we had to put a very large transformer in to support our MRI capabilities. And then the there's a tank underneath the hospital if there was ever a, a radiation spill or 
you know, we had to use our decontamination shower that has its own tank. So those were the only three real infrastructure things that weren't there. Other than that, you're absolutely right. It was kind of empty in the middle, had it supporting, it had the square footage. It was a good choice. And, you know, going back to, you know, the government support of micro hospitals, do you think that, you know, looking down the road that healthcare policy and regulation will support the micro hospitals and find them to be, you know, help the cause? for lack of a better word? I hope so. I understand where the government sits right now. I really do. There are unfortunately bad apples in every field. And right now, I think the majority of people that want to do these micro hospitals are physicians. And when you become a physician-owned hospital, especially when you're operating that hospital, it's very difficult to take Medicare because of Stark Law issues. You know, you come in and see a doctor and you have Medicare, you know, because these are Medicare rules, and they order just the normal blood panel, just a, a CMP and a CBC. Like that, that's everybody gets that. Well, you're technically in violation of that Stark law. So we're not sitting here saying we're going to order an MRI on everybody. That's not our deal. That's why we are transparent with pricing. That's why we have all the processes we set up. And we don't even allow our physician owners to be a part of that process. We've separated that as a physical barrier within our workflow for that reason. But that doesn't mean that every physician is as good as the people I work with. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so, and that's an unfortunate thing. If everybody was like these guys, I, I mean, we would be a better off world for sure. And, you know, I hope that, you know, more experienced people than myself can, can come up with a way to put regulations to where we can take care of more people in a a streamlined process. You know, a lot of it has to do with reimbursement rates at that point, right? The reimbursement rates have to be high enough to keep up with inflation. As our rent goes up, you know, we have to be able to do it. (laughs) And I experienced this even in pharmacies or through PBMs, we're taking most of the profits out of, you know, locally owned pharmacies. And until regulations come that would allow these local pharmacy owners to be successful, because they don't have the negotiating power of a Walgreens or a CVS, it becomes a very difficult thing to have local healthcare. You know, people that are caring about the local communities, which uh, multiple studies have shown that that's the most cost-efficient way. And most physician-owned hospitals are more cost-efficient than non-physician-owned hospitals. So, plenty of data out there, but unfortunately, that you know, bad apples ruin it for the group. Yeah, and I think it's. Unfortunately, it's a very multifaceted, dynamic, and multidimensional problem, you know, and it starts with, you know, the cost of been getting a a healthcare education continues to skyrocket. Absolutely. And, you know, once people invest in this, they have to get a return on it. Well, when they have to pay Mm -hmm. it back or, you know, pay for it, or if they're lucky enough to get scholarships or self-fund, but most people have to take loans out and they, you know, they have to pay for that plus their living expenses like you said you know have to pay for overhead and and salaries and and all of those things yeah you know i'm i'm certainly one of those people i'm i'm still paying off my school loans many years later and not a financially irresponsible person but i have a family and you know i wanted that good work life balance making that decision would end up making it to where i wasn't going to be able to pay those off right away no regrets on my my side, but it does put a hindrance on what I'm able to do and what I'm able to do with my family and my community. And you see other other countries that absolutely they 
bring down that cost of education and they may do education for free. And then people get paid a little bit less, but there's less stress that goes with that. Right. You know, and then, then they're there because they just want to take care of people instead of I have a bill to pay. Yeah. This may not be a question you want to answer, but, you know, based on the success of your micro hospital, do you think that the micro hospital market in general is poised and positioned because of healthcare costs and all, you know, confusion, you know, for the next, you know, short term or three to five years, you know, will you, do you see it? Do you see more micro hospitals coming to the market? Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're already seeing that with our sister facilities across the country where we see them expanding exponentially, honestly. I think there's always going to be large facilities that are specialized, have the ICUs. There's always been a problem of overuse of the ERs. We're kind of that middle ground between an urgent care and a, a large specialized facility, right? We can basically take care of all the normal stuff. And then like you had said earlier, if we can't take care of it, we know to, where to send you. And the overarching story is, is that people want a healthcare experience that they don't feel like they're a number. They don't want to go into a weight room for four hours and feel like they're a bother because they broke their leg, you know, and that's, or sit that's there in what pain. The, <laughs> and sit there in pain, you know what I mean? And that's, and that's what we end up seeing a lot of is, is those kind of things where they're like, oh, well, I didn't want to go in because I knew it four hours to get my chest pain checked out. Those are the stories that we absolutely see all the time. And they end up being real healthcare problems. So I think there's a very large market for this type of thing. It's just whether or not we have the staff out there to continue it. I mean, every field is starting to be short-staffed in the medical world. So it'll be difficult as more, more locations try to pop up, whether or not they can find the staff in their areas. Even for larger facilities, it's harder in rural areas to staff those. So now adding more facilities you know, for these smaller type of entities it may make it more difficult. Well, we could go on. I mean, I could sit here and talk to you for a very long time, but we'll go to the get to know you part of the interview. Okay. So what was your first job? My first job? Well, I'll, I'll tell too. The first job I ever remember having was my dad had a little office and he was a vice president of sales and I would clip coupons in the newspaper on Sundays and then I would go buy soda and then I would go fill his fridge and be a little vending machine operator for all his office people. So that was kind of where I first got my business ideas. My real first job, I worked for Pottery Barn Kids at Chandler Mall, which is no longer there. I helped build that store. So that was that was a, a good time to be, you know, when you're in high school and building a mall in your in your neck of the woods was fun. Totally. Yeah. I remember when that mall was going up. So what would you be doing for a living if you were not running a micro hospital? Sounds like you have a lot of interests. So you're probably doing Oh my, you know, I, <laughs> I, I'm also a real estate agent. So I, I renovated my whole house myself. A lot of fun with that stuff. I do work on my own 66 Mustang, but I probably, if I wasn't doing this, I'd probably be a marine biologist or something because I, I love dolphins and seals and otters and beluga whales. And I mean, Anything I could do to be in the ocean or on the ocean, that's, that's generally where I try to be in my off time. So, Nice. What or who are you reading right now or listening to for news, information, or inspiration? You know, this is probably a surprising answer. News I'm not listening to right now. 
you know, we all hear about, you know, fake news and, and media scare tactics. And I'm not saying any institution one way or the other is right or wrong, because I try not to listen to them, because I have to base my judgment on what I think is right for the facility. And right now, that's what the world is. The world is healthcare right now. And if I don't take an informational stance on what we're doing here, I feel like I'm leading people down the wrong road. I don't want to use my emotions. So I look through my email. I'm with the CDC, I'm, you know, with the FDA, with ISMP, with the pharmacy board, with the you know, Arizona Health Department, constant communication with, with all of these people. And it's a lot of information. I take it in. I take what I'm, I'm reading and I go and take it with my clinical counterparts. Dr. Peter Stockton, Dr. Dan Stites, and Sandy Scott, who's the, the chief nursing officer. The four of us really try to take all this information in and, and you know, make decisions right for our community, not necessarily follow what everybody else is doing. And what is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? I tickle the crap out of my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> How old is she's she? Four. Oh, um, so she's four. So she still likes dad right now still like, Oh, tickle me, dad. Okay. <laughs> you yeah. Know, I don't know. I, through the whole pandemic, I, I try to take, you know, longer showers where I just sit there and say, thank you that my family is all still healthy. Thank you that I'm in a situation where you know, I get to kind of try to prep and prepare what I think I need to do for my family. I still have my job. My whole family still has their job. My wife is a pharmacist as well. I just try to stay thankful, stay humble you know, I know that we're really lucky as a family and, and I've got three great kids that are all healthy and happy and a handful and, and love to wear dad out. I'd take it with a smile all day long. So that's, that's Absolutely. my, that's my piece. So I like it. Are leaders born or trained in your opinion? I've seen both, I guess. You know, I always look back on my childhood and everything and I would sit there and say, you know, my mom would say, no, you were born to be a leader. She, she always says, she's like, you've done more in my short time on this earth than, you know, my mom has in, you know, double that time. Right. And she always says that you were, you know, born for this. But I sit there and I think about everything my mom and dad trained me on when I was a kid, when I was seven years old, I was hearing human resource cases, you know, the sales pitches. And I was watching open heart surgeries at eight years old. I think that there is definitely a, a nurture part of that argument that can be there. I think that Jeremy, gentleman I mentioned earlier, has shown me that he was never one that was looking to be a leader. It wasn't something that he ever thought he was. And it's not necessarily something that I you know, saw in him that he could be a leader. But if you give him a piece of information, he could take it and run with it. And the ability to be trained and understand information and just go wild with it is it's just that's one of those natural abilities that unless somebody gives you the information to see how you do with it you never know is there yeah no i like it wow well thank you chase this has been a wonderful interview i appreciate your time absolutely no i appreciate it thanks for having me on I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.